This is an installation of the Ferris Center Events podcast series, brought to you by the Ferris Center for Eastern Mediterranean Studies at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Tony Monaco, the president of Tufts University, and it's a great privilege to welcome His Royal Highness Prince Turkey and his delegation to Tufts. Your Royal Highness, thank you for joining us here on campus this afternoon. Um, your visit is especially meaningful in view of Tufts' many connections with Saudi Arabia. We are fortunate to have long-standing relationships and interactions with Saudi Arabia through university partnerships and educational exchanges. And our entire academic community benefits from the strong representation of students from Saudi Arabia throughout all the schools at the university. Before we proceed to this evening's guest lecture, I'm honored to present His Royal Highness with the Robert and Joanne Bendenson Public Diplomacy Award. The Institute for Global Leadership established the Robert and Joanne Bendenson Public Diplomacy Award as part of the Bendenson Public Diplomacy Initiative. The award recognizes public officials, intellectuals, and individuals who have distinguished themselves in their efforts in public diplomacy, in bringing about reconciliation, and redressing inequities in the world. This evening's award is presented to His Royal Highness Prince Turkey Al-Fazl, and I quote, in recognition of his ongoing commitment to the importance of diplomacy in the pursuit of peace throughout the world. Your Royal Highness would like to present the award. If Bobby Benson can come up as well. There is the award in here. He's got the award. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, there we go. Sorry, sorry, in front of me. Thank you very much, Mr. President. You're Thank you. And now I'm going to hand over to uh, Dean Shahadi, the um, uh, director of the Farah Center who is going to introduce um, uh, Jim Stradivis and the Royal Highness. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Um, thank you all for coming. And it's a great honor to have with us Prince Turki Faisal, who has kindly accepted to come and talk to us. Prince Turki, you are very, you are very welcome. And our, our, our dean, Jim. Uh, James Tabridis is, is also here to conduct the conversation with you later. Uh, His Royal Highness Prince Turki Faisal uh, was born in Mecca, and he, is, he began his schooling in Taif, which is near, near Mecca, and also he was, he was educated at Lawrenceville High School in New Jersey and at Georgetown University. His Royal Highness was appointed advisor to the Royal Court in 1973. In 1977, he was appointed Director General with the rank of Minister of the General Intelligence Directorate, Saudi Arabia's main foreign intelligence service, and serves as its head till 2001. In October 2002, His Royal Highness was appointed as the Saudi Arabian Ambassador to the United Kingdom, where I had the Great privilege of meeting him regularly in some house, and uh, he, he later served 
as ambassador to the United States and retired in February 2007. Obviously, a very active re retirement. He's a founder and trustee of the King Faisal Foundation and the chairman of the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies. Uh, additionally, His Royal Highness is a trustee of the Oxford Islamic Center at Oxford University, uh, of the Center for Contemporary Arab Studies at Georgetown University, where you studied. Uh, he has an honorary PhD in law from the University of Ulster in Ireland, another honorary PhD from the University of Hankook in Korea, and an honorary PhD from the University of Shanghai. Uh, he's also a distinguished professor at Georgetown University. His Royal Highness is an active participant in the World Economic Forum, in the annual meetings and in the Global Economic Symposium. He's also a, a regular at the Clinton Global, Global Initiative's annual, annual meetings. He's a member of the Board of Trustees of the Library of Alexandria, a member of the Beirut Institute and Board of Trustees of Arab Council of International Relations. Uh, he's a member of Al-Quds Fund and Endowment and a member of the Advisory Council of the Munich Security Conference. Um, in October 2016, he was awarded Honorary Citizenship of Seoul in South Korea and and, and the, the mayor of Seoul and, um, gave him a, a key to the, to the city uh, as an honorary, honorary citizen. Your, your Highness, um, you are so welcome here and we're so glad you're, you're, you're coming. This is a very vibrant community I've come to meet in the last two years. And usually people welcome you to, to, the, to the family, but we are really a mafia, and a very useful mafia. I hope this will be the first visit, and that later you will come to meet our amazing faculty and students, and be part of that mafia. It's almost like a state within a state in Washington. <laughs> very useful to very, very useful to know. And uh, after your introductory remarks, our, our, our team, Admiral Stavridis, is going to have a lead the conversation. As you know, Admiral Stavridis is our 12th dean. This is the oldest school of international affairs in, in, in the United States. It was founded in 1932. And he's, he's of course, um, four-star general in the US Navy. And we needed him. As our, as, as our leader, he, he was, he, he led the NATO Global Alliance uh, in several of its operations, and he was Supreme Allied Commander with the responsibility for Afghanistan, Libya, the Balkans, Syria, piracy, and cybersecurity. Um, you're both welcome, and thank you for Ladies and gentlemen, what a privilege it is to be back at Fletcher School. And um, I must say, 
with all the issues about fake news and other things, I thought that might have been a fake award. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm very glad that the president found it, and I'm very privileged to have received it. <laughs>
that we must consciously learn from the pitfalls of the past. We must plan our future wisely and be alert at all times if we want to avoid a catastrophic future. We must courageously face the challenges that threaten our existence and attain a visionary approach to the future if we wish to attain a decent place on the world stage. We're facing immense challenges. Some of them are in our hands to solve, but others, unfortunately, need the hands of others as well. First, the preservation of the nation state in the Arab world is of vital importance to the security and stability of its social components. Realization of such a goal cannot be achieved without creating a normal relationship between the state and its citizens whereby the state becomes the guardian of all of its citizens with all shades and colors, attending to their ambitions and aspirations and being the point of reference to their national identity. Moreover, governments must, must respond energetically to reform needs and constantly strive to lead society toward better conditions. We must strive to rescue Arab states which are on the brink of collapse and disintegration, and their societies to overcome this perilous state by working with them to create a new social contract that will save them from present miseries, restore their hopes, and fulfill their ambitions and expectations. Second, the weakness, fragility, and fragmentation of the Arab regional system which affects all of its political, economic, social, and cultural institutions must be cured. This system lacks the necessary vitality to provide the minimum requirements to defend the Arab countries, let alone qualifying them to attain a respectable place within the framework of international order and the context of their people's aspirations. Despite the establishment of the Arab League, which oversaw the transition from colonialism to independence and enacted agreements and treaties to secure the interest of all its members. The blind ambition to gain sole leadership by the rising nationalist socialists led to its decay and the paralyzed and empty skeleton devoid of any potential or vitality. If we aspire to attain dynamic participation in the global order, we must avoid repeating past ideological obstacles and petty attitudes and trivial competition about who is small and who is grand, who has deep and illustrious historical roots and who is of recent appearance on stage, squabbles that characterize attempts at cooperation throughout the past seven decades. The failure of the system led to large-scale strategic deterioration within the Arab region, allowing the existence of a strategic vacuum that allowed Israel and Iranian leadership and other powers to tamper with our countries and our social fabric. It is imperative upon us to repair the damage inflicted upon Arab communal efforts and be prepared for all possibilities, taking into consideration the damage of Israeli occupation of Palestine and the threat of the destructive interference of the Iranian leadership in the internal affairs of our states, spreading their sectarian ideology 
and attempting to export their crisis to us while actively supporting sectarian terrorism. Even with the most celebrated achievement of President Obama's foreign policy, the nuclear deal, the Iranian leadership's belligerent attitude toward their neighbors is evident in their continued outright occupation of the United Arab Emirates Islands and continued meddling in the affairs, in the internal affairs of Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Lebanon, and Bahrain. The danger posed by Iran is real, especially when we realize that all attempts to reform Iranian policies went in vain. Despite the fact that we, not, that we do not harbor any ill feelings toward Iran and its people as neighbors and brothers in faith, we must ensure our regional security requirements and collectively strive to face these imminent and present dangers. We must rectify the power imbalance vis-a-vis -vis Iran and any disequilibrium will no doubt allow the Iranian leadership to exploit all gaps to infiltrate our countries. In this regard, I believe that the experiment of the GCC is a pioneering and successful one in the Arab world despite the current Qatari crisis that was caused by Qatar tweeting outside the flock. It is my hope that this crisis ends by bringing Qatar to harmony with its other sister states in the GCC. Therefore, regardless how this crisis ends, we must maintain and develop the GCC so that it can lead to economic integration through intensifying cooperation in all fields and surmount all obstacles in the path of its goals. Furthermore, sustaining the GCC due to its geostrategic importance of immense energy reserves and its geopolitical location that connects all continents, as well as its being the center of Islam and Arab culture, can play a major role in protecting its interests and contributing to lifting the Arab world out of its mess. Third, the fragility, stagnation, and eternal weakness of many Arab states at all political, governmental, economic, social, and cultural levels call for drastic remedial measures to cross over to the future, whereby they can effectively respond to the needs and aspirations of Arab societies and absorb all of their diverse social components, thus preventing the rise and spread of extremism and terrorism, and guarding the integrity and stability of these states. These reforms will facilitate a positive interaction with globalization and with the fourth industrial revolution and benefit from its dynamism. Our identity, our values, and our faith are deeper than what the naysayers claim. I'm optimistic that many countries have awoken to the inevitability and indispensability of reform and moved in the right direction. This trend must not stop for any reason whatsoever. My country, for example, has taken concrete steps in that direction, whether in diversifying the economy away from one source of income, or in women enjoying their inalienable rights, 
or in prosecuting corruption and those who benefit from it. Fourth, terrorism remains a serious threat and a strategic challenge facing the Arab states, especially when it is camouflaged in religious forms that taint the purity of our faith and attempt to hijack it. Without serious confrontation with terrorism at all levels and eradicating its causes, our countries will never enjoy stability. This terrorism is not only the terrorism of Daesh, or as I prefer to call it Fahash. Those of you who know Arabic will know why. Or in Al-Qaeda, that is, that is waning, but also terrorism perpetrated by the Iranian-supported extremist sectarian militias in Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Lebanon, and other areas. This cross-border terrorism poses an existential threat to the nation-state in our region. It requires that all should cooperate to defeat it and create the right climate to treat its root causes. However, obsession with it, though justified, should not blanket our eyes of strategic issues that determine causes and breed terrorism, like, and this is number five, fifth, the Arab-Israeli conflict. It remains a real challenge to the Arab future. It has been and still remains the cause of hampering many of the Arab projects during the past seven decades and other international initiatives about the future of the region. Without a just solution that takes into consideration legitimate demands, this area will never experience stability and will remain exposed to all negative possibilities because it involves all parts of the Arab world. The solution to this problem is not in our hands solely, but it is an international responsibility. Ignoring the solution on the part of the United States or any other capable powers in the world will only hamper all of their initiatives in the Arab region. In this regard, we must not forget that the fate of regional initiatives presented post-Oslo and which were doomed due to the faltering of the peace process. We are all aware that Arab countries welcomed the march toward peace which commenced in Madrid with the hope of solving this conflict within the guarantees, within the parameters of international norms and UN decisions and that they entered into negotiations with Israel to reach the desired peace. The Arab states did not stop at that, but they participated in all efforts and the multilateral negotiations with the hope of creating the right climate and mutual trust. Some even went far in their relationship with Israel to encourage her to seek the road to peace. The Arab Peace Initiative of the late King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia remains as the only viable solution to this seemingly intractable conflict. But I'm not here to illustrate all the attempts to settle this conflict. All of you are privy to their details. What I wish to emphasize, which is relevant to the subject of this talk, is the following. Just peace has not been achieved. All efforts pertaining to the future of this region 
and the negotiations about engineering a new future for it have gone in vain. The perpetuation of this conflict will continue to be a cause of threat to the security and stability of the region, even if, it, if Israel and its allies claim that the cause of the region's instability is what is happening to the pre at the present and has no direct relation to this prolonged conflict. They ignore that the banner headline that the terrorists use to recruit their followers is the suffering of the Palestinian people. The Iranian leadership have named their main interventionist arm the Quds Brigade. And you know what Quds stands for, stands for Jerusalem. The Israeli people themselves are in danger of turning into an apartheid state, enslaving the Palestinian people and facing the potential sanction that South Africa faced when it was the apartheid state. Sixth is the relationship of Arab governments with their citizens. If an Arab citizen of any Arab state does not have a proprietary relationship with his or her government, is it a wonder that that citizen feels marginalized and attracted to nihilist convictions or sectarian identity? Citizenship of all the people is a just and, in a just and fair society is the only guarantee against these impulses. Education, rule of law, and owning one's well-being will bring about the stability and harmony of Arab society. Ladies and gentlemen, these challenges are but a few among many other strategic ones that are clearly connected to the path of our future. Without facing them, our future will resemble our past, if not worse. Despite all of that, we must cling to optimism. Saudi Arabia is steadfast in the face of these challenges, striving to find the right solution and moving forward. Saudi Arabia has managed for many long decades to preserve its stability and national security. Despite the internal and external challenges, crises, and serious threats that it faced, it continued to be committed to its policies of development in all fields and by the grace of God will succeed in the face of present threats and future uncertainties. It will continue to grow and develop and fulfill the aspirations and goals of its peoples. The surest path for maintaining our security and stability is through our commitment to maintaining the unity of our social fabric, a constant synergy between the citizens and the leadership, a continuous positive response to their hopes, dreams, and aspirations, and a keen attention to the implementation of social justice, equality, and freedom. The state must preserve, must persevere in remedying any defects in our economic, social, educational, cultural, and security policies, and enhance our national identity and values. All citizens are the trustees of our country and our state. Saudi Arabia is still a work in progress. We move forward, commit mistakes, and rectify them. They are our mistakes, and the means of rectifying them are our means. We accept advice from our friends, but the clothes we wear 
are sold by our tailors, not by the most talented fashion designers in Paris, New York, or London, and definitely not by the tailors in the bazaar of Tehran. Ladies and gentlemen, it is fair to say that the U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East during the reign of the past two administrations contribute immensely to this state of affairs. By destroying the Iraqi national state, failure in responding in time to the massacres of the Syrian people, ignoring the rise of non-state actors, the absence of a serious will to solve the protracted issue of Israeli occupation of Palestine and Arab lands, and disregard of advice of friends and allies in the region were major causes of regional disorder. It is my hope that the Trump administration remedy the ramifications, the short-sighted policies of the previous administrations in the region. As good, a good friend, you, Americans, your government, your media, have been urging us throughout our friendship to reform ourselves. Over the years, we have listened to and benefited from that advice. We still have some way to go before we are satisfied with our ways. Roundabout, ladies and gentlemen, is fair play. And I offer the following advice to you. Reform your political system. Your people are polarized. Your political parties are at each other's throats. There is no consensus. Is it okay with you that your Supreme Court has legalized political bribery as a right? Is it okay with you that one man, one vote is abrogated by a long outdated electoral college? Is it okay with you that your media has no boundaries and accountability as your executive, legislative, and judicial branches of government? I and many others of your friends around the world are asking these questions because what affects you, good or bad, affects us. We want you strong and stable. Hopefully, you will continue to be the beacon of human progress and development, and not a socially and politically ribbon body politic that eats itself from inside. We in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia are attentive to the sense of responsibility and to noble intentions, and as emphasized by the custodian of the two holy mosques, King Salman and Abdul Aziz, on all occasions, we will cooperate and collaborate with all who mean well in order to deal with all of the challenges facing us. The aim is to bring security, stability, and peace to our countries and our people to attend to our future and therefore world peace and security. Vision 2030 is the platform on which we aim to proceed with our political, social, and economic reform. Some critics have called it ambitious. 
What is wrong with ambition? Our course is set. Our leadership, the king and the crown prince, are committed. Our people are decided. And we proceed to a better future, God willing. Thank you for this. standing room only audience that you've generated. Um, first, let me congratulate you on a talk that was uh, a, a true tour of the horizon, a talk that was uh, realistic and clear-eyed, a talk that was cautiously optimistic, very cautiously optimistic, but, but gave us a few tendrils of hope. Um, in the midst of, as you recognize, sir, a very challenging set of circumstances in the region. Um, you did a marvelous job looking outside the kingdom. Can you take us inside the kingdom for a moment and perhaps give a little commentary on events in particular over the last month or so where we've seen a very uh, activist, crown prince, you and I both know him, um, very dynamic. We are seeing uh, changes in the kingdom. It's getting harder to get a reservation at the Ritz Carlton. Well, I'm sure, Admiral, if you want the place, I'll Indeed, and the kingdom, as I was telling the Admiral before we came here, throughout its, its development and evolution has been evolving and moving from past to present and hopefully to, to the future. But nowadays, because of social media, everything that happens anywhere in the world doesn't stay where it happens. It goes everywhere. And so the attention paid to the kingdom because of the events that have taken place uh, even before the last month, I think, have brought the kingdom to people's attention more than previous. Um, from before uh, King Salman took office, the, uh, the kingdom was always, if you look at the statements made by our successive kings from the time of King Abdulaziz, uh, 1932, when the kingdom became a unified into Saudi Arabia. Until today, um, the issue of, of corruption was a, was a challenge. A challenge that was publicly abhorred, not just by the leadership, but by religious leaders, and by social uh, pundits and, and spokesmen, and in schools, and so on. And uh, six months ago, in one of his weekly uh, <coughs> public meetings with the citizenry, uh, King Salman talked about an incident that happened during the time of King Abdulaziz, uh, in which uh, a citizen of Riyadh uh, 
sued King Abdulaziz over a piece of property uh, that he claimed had been taken by King Abdulaziz and uh, demanded that there be um, uh, a legal settlement for this uh, dispute. So he and King Abdulaziz, of course, in those days, we didn't have um, the infrastructure to have courthouses and, and other uh, present-day uh, facilities. Uh, the judges at that time used to sit in their in judgment in their homes, in a room dedicated to public function in the home. And when King Abdulaziz went with his citizen to the house of one of the judges, and the judge asked King Abdulaziz, he said, are you here on official business or private business? And the king said, I'm being sued by this gentleman. So the judge said, well, you'll have to wait in the parlor until I come and see you, take your turn. And he did. And when the judge finally finished with the other cases that were before him, uh, he called them in. And I don't remember now how the suit went, but the, the point of the king King Salman is that nobody is above the law. And all of us can be sued or can be tried in a court of law, etc. And the issue of the arrests that have taken place, I'm assuming because I'm not in government, so I don't know what the uh, specific uh, regulations and, and uh, decisions that were taken to, uh, to undertake this particular um, path. Um, I'm assuming that they, they've been building uh, since King Salman uh, became king nearly two years ago. And when finally the, uh, the uh, issue requiring collection of evidence and witnesses and so on um, ripened, the king issued an order uh, to establish uh, an anti-corruption commission uh, to which he delegated the responsibility of implementation to the conference, uh, Prince Hamlet and Salman. And the very next day, of course, the, the arrests were undertaken of prominent individuals from not only the royal family, but also government officials and others in, uh, in the society. And all of the statements public that I've seen uh, indicate that there are going to be trials, open trials, where these cases will be adjudicated and uh, decisions will be reached. Um, this is the procedural issue as I understand it. I've been here since the issue came, came to, to, uh, to the media, so uh, this is what I'm assuming uh, is going to happen. I know that uh, some of the individuals who have been arrested uh, have been allowed to contact their, not only lawyers, but also their, their families and so on to reassure them about their health, etc., etc. And as you say, Ali, the Ritz Carlton is not such a bad thing. <laughs> I don't know if they will use it as an advertisement. <laughs> anyway, uh, this is on the issue of, uh, of corruption. On other issues, of course, uh, we're surrounded, as I mentioned in, uh, in my presentation, by hotspots. And I've been telling my American audiences particularly 
that if the Arabian Peninsula, which is attached to the Asian continent, could somehow be cut off on our borders with Jordan and with Iraq, and we sail into the oceans and lay anchor somewhere near Sweden or Norway, <laughs> we wouldn't have so many hotspots around us. But unfortunately, we can't do that. So uh, geography is, is something that forces itself on us. And we have to deal with what we have. Uh, I mentioned Iran in my presentation. Uh, three things bind us to Iran. One is geography. Two is religion. We have both adherents of, of Islam. And uh, in both countries, we have citizens who are Sunnah and Shia of various sects. Uh, and so um, that is another linkage between us and Iran. And throughout history, the migration of people from the Arabian Peninsula to the more fertile lands around the peninsula meant that many of our people from the peninsula migrated to Iran. And in reverse, once Islam became the uh, religion of most the, of the citizens of Iran, many from that part of the Muslim world came to Arabia for the pilgrimage and for other uh, religious duties and settled in Arabia. So, on, on the level of, of human contact, there is much that binds us with the people of, uh, of Iran. And one of the ironies of all of this situation is that present-day head man in Iran, Khamenei, he claims descent from an Arab. The Prophet Muhammad, because he wears a black turban. So I tell my Arab friends who, who, who warn us and, and you know sometimes want to express uh, a negative view of what they call the Persians, I tell them these Persians are being ruled by an Arab. What are you afraid of? So, uh, there is nothing that, that you know should keep us apart. But these are ironies I think that unfortunately have not yet sunk into uh, the thinking of, of many people. And so, uh, this is where I think, I hope I answered your question. You did. Um, sir, uh, and then after this next question, I'm going to open it up, so please be thinking about some, uh, some good questions for His Royal Highness. Um, the largest, most populous Arab country, of course, is Egypt. Um, can you say a word about uh, the relationship between the kingdom and Egypt and where you see Egypt going because of its uh, its mass, its scale in this part of the world. I feel at times we don't pay enough attention or speak enough or focus enough on Egypt. Your thoughts, sir? The kingdom and, and, and Egypt, as I was mentioning about Iran, we're bound by geography as well and by human contact course, and equally by religion. So uh, all these three factors uh, play uh, historically, of course, um, the relationship with Egypt has always been a very close relationship. Um, almost uh, symbiotic and, and very, very, very much uh, 
part and parcel not only of, of, of language and religion and, and uh, physical and human contact, uh, but also of trade and commerce and, and uh, politics and all of education, etc. So it's always been considered as uh, a, an ally and a strategic ally. We've had our differences with Egypt in the past. We've gotten over them. And at the moment, the kingdom and Egypt are enjoying a very close uh, relationship. But one thing we must remember about Egypt, it is the oldest country in the world. If my Chinese friends, excuse me from saying that. Um, and it's, it has had an identity for 7,000 years. And in all that time, Egypt has been ruled by either a pharaoh or a foreign invader. And when the eruptions of what is called the Arab Spring took place and popular uprising uh, happened in, uh, in Egypt, to expect that event to turn towards a democratic way of, of life or a system in such a short time, I think, is a mistake. All popular uprisings, wherever they may happen, take their time to settle down. And especially in a country that has had, as I mentioned, this long history of a specific system of rule and government and relationship between the people and, and their rulers. Add to that, and compounding it, is the huge number of people that live in Egypt today. Over 100 million in a land area where the resources, even though the Nile is abundant and other such um, natural resources exist in Egypt, it is very difficult to, to find the, the, the sustenance and the the uh, economic and, uh, and uh, uh, standard of living that Egyptian citizens should be getting wherever they may be. So it is a challenge, and not just for the present government, but I think for anybody who uh, will put their, their, themselves in, in, a, in a position of, of making a decision in, in Egypt. And the kingdom has always sought, as I mentioned in, our, in my presentation, uh, to be helpful to our neighbors, particularly Egypt, because their stability affects our stability. And their instability definitely makes us unstable. Uh, and so we will continue to be as helpful as, uh, as we can, and we hope the best for the Egyptian people. No country is perfect, that's my view. And uh, I think the challenges that face the <coughs> leadership are much, much more complicated than challenges in other countries, including in Saudi Arabia. So, uh, and it is up basically to the Egyptian people to, to deal with these, with these situations. And we wish them success, because to do otherwise, I think, would be to condemn them to to hardship and, and instability for, for years to, to come, which could not serve our purposes.
Indeed, and, and you know, I'm often reminded, and, and the, the Prince and I spoke about this earlier, uh, in the United States, we are, as we sit here, uh, just a couple of miles from where the, if I may, where the American Spring began. We're talking about the Arab Spring. The American Spring began in Lexington and Concord. And my point is, in 1976, we have an uprising here. We don't create a constitution for 13 years until 1789. We then have a series of rebellions and revolts, the Whiskey Revolt, Shays Rebellion, and we culminate 70 years after independence with the Civil War that kills 20% of the male population of the United States. Uh, Thomas Jefferson said, you should not expect to be carried to democracy on a feather bed. And I think that as I look at uh, Egypt, I, I think we're going to see a few more uh, twists and turns in that story. Um, let me uh, let me open it up to this. Uh, I know well-informed and highly interested audience. Um, and right here, uh, Professor, uh, could you just uh, stand up and speak up? Yes. So, uh, so. My name is Nadim Rohana. Welcome to Fletcher. You describe Saudi Arabia as uh, surrounded by hot spots. Uh, the sense in the Middle East is that the Middle East is turbulent. The Gulf is turbulent. People in the Middle East have a sense of impredictability. Uh, they are worried about what, what might happen. And I wonder if you don't see that Saudi Arabia has a part in that, actually a significant part in that. Uh, if we look at Saudi Arabia's role in Yemen, and the war in Yemen, if you, we look at Saudi Arabia's role in Qatar, uh, if we look at what happened recently with Lebanon, I think that most people here are, are uh, uh, familiar with that. Saudi Arabia's role in Syria. So isn't it fair to think also, to, have, to give some agency to Saudi Arabia and think about the policies that Saudi Arabia is conducting and creating that turbulence or contributing to that turbulence, uncertainty, and fear in the Middle East. And the, the last point, if you don't mind, what is the contribution of Saudi Arabia to war against terrorism? We, uh, because that's a big, big point in Saudi Arabia's policies. No, it is not fair. And I'll tell you why. Uh, take Yemen as an example. Saudi Arabia did not start the war in Yemen. The conflict in Yemen started with the military takeover by a small minority of uh, Yemeni uh, adherence to uh, a, 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 an option of the Zaydi sect in Yemen uh, in alliance with the uh, former president who was at the beginning of the problems a few years before and was a cause of those problems, Ali Abdullah until uh, Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf states and the world community brought together uh, a roadmap that led to his resignation and the formation of an interim government that uh, received the full recognition of the world community with a program of national dialogue and reconciliation 
that had been agreed to by all the parties, including the Houthis, and it was the Houthis who abrogated that agreement with the help of President Ali Abdullah Saleh, occupied the capital, imprisoned the president and the cabinet, and literally thousands of others in the jails, and took over the, the, the weaponry of the armed forces and began to want to occupy the rest of Yemen. Um, the president managed to escape from their clutches and headed to the second capital in Yemen, Aden, where he called for international support against this military uprising by the Houthis and by Ali Abdullah Saleh. Saudi Arabia and other countries in the area formed a coalition to help the legitimate government in, uh, in Yemen. And a couple of months after that, the United Nations Security Council issued a resolution 2216, which basically required the Houthis and Ali Abdullah Saleh to release the prisoners that they had taken, to retreat from the cities that they had occupied by force, and to relinquish the weapons that they had stolen from the government uh, armories, and to return to the agreement that was reached in the National Dialogue Convention that had been held uh, before. And the United Nations Security Council resolution um, further condemned the actions of Ali Abdullah Saleh uh, and the leader of the Houthis as being illegal in Yemen. So I would respectfully say to you, sir, that your description of Saudi Arabia's activities in Yemen is mistaken. Uh, on Syria, Saudi Arabia did not start the conflict in Syria. The one who started the conflict in Syria was Bashar al-Assad. And we all know what he has done to his people. Saudi Arabia tried in the coalition that arose worldwide and not just by Saudi Arabia. That coalition composed European countries, composed the United States, and composed of Arab countries, etc., to try to help the Syrian people. Unfortunately, for reasons that you're all aware of, that effort to help the Syrian people has not succeeded. And where Saudi Arabia stands and has stood from the very beginning, is that the Syrian people should be given the chance to take matters into their own hands. But how do you do that? A proposition that I and three others, ex-officials in the Arab world, the ex-foreign minister of Kuwait, the ex-foreign uh, minister of Egypt, and then secretary general of the Arab League, and one of the ex-foreign ministers from Jordan made a proposition two and a half years ago, in which we called for the international community to come together to impose a ceasefire on Syria. 
And with all of the military hardware deployed in Syria, with the presence of the uh, coalition led by America, or now with the presence of, of the Russian uh, intervention, with the presence of the Iranian armed forces in, in, uh, in Syria, with the presence of the Turkish intervention in Syria, I think the world community can impose a ceasefire and make sure that whoever breaks it will be his heart. And once you have a ceasefire, then you can go to the Syrian people and let them, through a national conference, choose whoever wants to rep uh, they want to represent them. Because from my perspective, and I think the perspective of Saudi Arabia, Bashar al-Assad has lost any legitimacy or credibility to be a leader of Syria. He is the ultimate terrorist in Syria. He has killed more Syrians than Fahish, Jabhat al-Nusra, Al-Qaeda, or any other uh, terrorist group that has operated in Syria. <coughs> By a multiple of, of thousands, not just twice or three times as much. He has dislocated half the population of Syria inside Syria and created more than five million refugees outside Syria. How anyone can consider him to be worthy of remaining as president of, of that country, I don't know. And I think the world community owes it to the, to the Syrian people to provide them with that chance to select and elect their leadership and the form of government that, that they want. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has never called for the destruction of the Syrian government and infrastructure as happened in Iraq when America invaded Iraq. But we also called that those who were responsible for the mass killings, the chemical weapons that were deployed, etc., etc., should be brought to trial. So the kingdom was not the one that started the Syrian uh, uprising, nor was it the one that, that continues to, uh, to help Bashar al-Assad to stay in power. In other areas, in Lebanon, you tell me when the Saudi Arabia has ever sent to Lebanon thousands of rockets to arm a militia in Lebanon in order to fight Israel or to fight any other enemy or so-called occupier of Lebanese land. Saudi Arabia never did that. When the present Prime Minister, who resigned recently, Saad al-Hariri, decided on his own to give his support to Michel Rahon to become president of, of Lebanon, Saudi Arabia did not stand in his way. Although we all know that Michel Rahon was an ally of Hezbollah. We don't interfere in the affairs of other states. We have no geographic ambitions. We have no economic ambitions, and definitely we have no other uh, aspirations about leadership 
whether in the Arab world or any other place in, 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 this, uh, in this planet. So the kingdom's activities in Lebanon have always been in the form of accepting what the Lebanese people decide for themselves. And when Saad al-Hariri decided to, to resign, it was his decision. I know in your press, you know, they say that he was forced to resign. But that is the mantra that Hezbollah is, is, is uh, propagating. It's not. Saad al-Hariri resigned on his own, and I think he said so in public. I, I don't know if you saw his, his interview or not. And I heard to just today that he tweeted on his account in, in Twitter. I'm not a follower of Twitter, but others tell me about it that uh, he plans to go back to, to Lebanon. Rightly so, because he is a Lebanese leader. And, and, and look who, who, who committed the, the, the assassinations in, in Lebanon. Not Saudi Arabia. It's Hezbollah. An international tribunal has indicted members of Hezbollah in the killing of Saad Hayri's father. And yet those that have been indicted and identified by that international commission are living free without any fear of punishment because Hassan Nasrallah said, I'm not going to deliver them to be uh, imprisoned uh, for, for their crime. So it's not Saudi Arabia that is instigating unrest in, uh, uh, in Lebanon. And I can count other stories like that whether in Bahrain, uh, in Kuwait, uh, you remember in Kuwait a year and a half ago, the government discovered uh, a bunker underground in one of the houses in, in, uh, in Kuwait that was filled with explosives and, and, and weapons and, and ammunition and even army uniforms with patches from the Iranian Republican Guard. And through the court system, they indicted the owner of the house and a member of the Iranian embassy for having put this plot to undertake activity in, in, in Kuwait. Who knows what happened? We all remember during the Iran-Iraq war, the attempt on the late Sheikh Ahmed al-Jabr, uh, Jabr al-Ahmed uh, in Kuwait uh, by Hezbollah. So my point, sir, is that Saudi Arabia is reacting to developments. We would like to see a peaceful and, 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 and harmonious and, and uh, progressive Middle East. We don't seek revolution. We don't instigate uprisings. But we try to challenge those who do. I hope I answered your questions. And others. Uh, we get a student here. I'm not right back here. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming to speak with us tonight. My name is Rafi Manatsatanian. I'm a second year student at the Fletcher School. Um, Recently, the, the king traveled to Russia, and many in the United States would look at Russia's presence in the Middle East as a disruptor. And given the fact that uh, the Chinese just had their national congress, 
and there's this talk about the China's rise and rise of a lot of the Asian economies. And given China's ambition to move, to look westward in their one belt, one road policy, how do you see that uh, impacting uh, the Middle East and then specifically for the kingdom in terms of, is, that a dis is it going to be a disruptor or is it going to be a stabilizer? The kingdom will do its best to express to the Chinese leadership and the Russian leadership where we think stability and security can be achieved, whether it is in Syria, whether it is in, in, in Iraq, in, in the various other hot places, not just in our part of the world, but also the potential dangers of, of issues of atomic warfare in the Korean Peninsula, etc., etc. And uh, Russia is in Syria, with respect, because America has refused to play a role in Syria that would prevent the Russians from going there. We all remember the red lines of President Obama and what happened subsequent to that. And the appeals that succeeded that by President Obama's Secretary of State, John Kerry, to Mr. Lavrov, and he's currently after Mr. Lavrov to get some kind of agreement on the chemical weapons in, in Syria and subsequently on other developments in, in Syria. And that's what I meant in my presentation, that there are some things that we can do in our part of the world, but other things, others will have to be engaged in. Now, I saw in the recent meeting between President Trump and President Putin in uh, uh, Vietnam that they had agreed on a plan for Syria. And if the American president is engaged with Mr. Putin on that level, I think Saudi Arabia is equally justified in engaging with Mr. Putin, at least to show Mr. Putin where our interests are, so that he doesn't make a mistake by assuming or by simply not recognizing that we have interests in various places, whether in, in Syria or in other places. So our relationship with Russia, we also have a common uh, bond with Russia, which is the issue of oil. Uh, they produce and export oil, and we produce and export oil, and both of us would want to have a stable oil market where the prices are not necessarily either depressed too low or not so high that you know people can't afford them anymore. So working with Russia is very important to maintain a stable um, oil market in, uh, in the world. And with China, we have a, an equally stable and, and fruitful relationship in terms of trade and so on. I think today they are probably the, the biggest importer of Saudi oil. Uh, succeeding the United States, which used to be uh, in that position. Uh, and also Chinese companies are working in Saudi Arabia in, in construction and in, in other uh, projects that, uh, that we have. And the kingdom contributed to China's uh, uh, infrastructure bank that they set up uh, a year and a half ago uh, to meet the challenge of uh, supporting 
poorer countries to develop their, their infrastructure. And we believe that the, the One Belt, One Road uh, project of China can bring people together. Uh, and hopefully through business interests um, increase the stability and, and equanimity uh, of the world situation. So we have no inhibitions uh, about working with, uh, with, uh, with China. I hope I answered the question. Okay, how about someone over in this? Uh, how about uh, all the way in the back here? Your Honor, thank you so much for speaking to us. Um, I'm really intrigued about what you said about Saudi Arabia. Uh, Professor Hanna spoke about how Saudi is doing with the external front, Rabbi said the same, how Saudi is playing a role in the region. I'm more intrigued about what Saudi Arabia is doing internally. In the last two years, since King Salman has been at the helm, um, it's never, there's never been a better time to be in Saudi Arabia, uh, if you're not corrupt, that is. And women are going to have the right to drive by June next year. There's going to be a new city in the works, uh, on the border with Egypt and Jordan. And all kinds of infrastructure development is taking place in Saudi Arabia. I want to understand, there's one, so there's one constituency that still hasn't seen the benefits of this new administration, which is the minority in Qatif and Hassa. I grew up in Saudi Arabia and I was born in Qatif, and I live in Dhamam, but I travel to Qatif because that's where my favorite restaurant is. <laughs> and every time I go to Qatif, I see this huge fortification and there's a huge police presence. And it's a lot easier for me because I'm not a Saudi citizen, but any car or carrying a Saudi citizen that does pass through that is stopped and checked and it takes a lot more time for them to pass through than just me. So my question would be, is there something on the angle for Saudi Shias, especially the ones that live in Qatif and Hassa, is there something better that we can expect under, the new, under uh, uh, King Salman or under the Crown Prince? We're seeing this modernization, we're seeing reform. Is there something positive that we can expect for Saudi Shias? Indeed. Um, in the last six months, if I'm not mistaken, um, development projects in the eastern province have been doubled in terms of expenditure and infrastructure building, particularly in the villages, not in Qatif itself, Qatif is, as I understand it, is more developed than the other villages around it, in order to meet the challenge of these few uh, malcontents who have uh, instigated uh, program of uh, shooting at police cars and other uh, official um, uh, automobiles or, or, or individuals that operate in, in the area in the eastern province. And uh, Al-Hasa, I, I would not put in the same league as the villages of Qatif. Al-Hasa is a thriving and, and prosperous uh, community of both Shia and Sunni. Uh, who have lived together for, for hundreds of years, if not from the beginning of Islam. And uh, they are part and parcel of the, of the, of the kingdom from time immemorial. So uh, I would not add Al-Hasa to, to what is happening in, in, in the area of Qatif. And there is a particular village in, uh, near Qatif called Al-Awamiya, uh, where it was the, the, the center of, of, of this anti-government operations 
by individuals who have espoused, unfortunately, the, 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 the philosophy and the ideology that is exported by Iran uh, on the issue of Wilayat al-Faqih and the rule of the cleric. And as I mentioned, they, uh, they shoot at police cars and uh, they throw Molotov cocktails, etc., etc. And, and grievance in Saudi Arabia, like in all other countries, is, is one that the government responds to. Um, sometimes more slowly than other times, but on the whole, I, mean, I would say that uh, the kingdom's engagement with its citizens, whether they be Shia or Sunnah, is a better example of what can happen in a developing country like Saudi Arabia than in many other places, not just around us, but perhaps on a worldwide basis. Do we still have much to do? Yes. We do. Uh, on the issue of women driving, for example, and from my perspective, I remember the first time I touched on that subject was in 2002. It was at the World Economic Forum meeting in New York after September 11th. And uh, someone in the audience, when I was giving it a talk, asked I mean, when women can be allowed to, to, to drive in Saudi Arabia. And I said, if it was my case, I, mean, I would say yesterday. Uh, but unfortunately, from 2002 until this year, it didn't take place. So that was one of the slow aspects of women, uh, women's rights and the grievance for women that is justified. Uh, women's education, it was the, the government that took the, the initiative there in 1961 by developing uh, schools for women and other educational institutions for them, in spite of opposition in certain sectors of the society. And I remember in 1961, um, when public uh, schooling for women was initiated, the school buses that took the, the girls from their homes to, to, the, to the school, not just in Riyadh, but in other towns and villages in Saudi Arabia, had to be escorted by armored vehicles. Uh, to protect them from people who wanted to, to stop them from, uh, from going to school. That's an example of where the government took the initiative uh, on, on a specific grievance that had lived there. And uh, I think, yes, on, on the issue of, of the Shia, and, in, in the, and particularly in that area of the Jatif area, um, the, the government is has initiated a program of development that hopefully will, uh, will bring them up to the standards of other places, not just in the eastern province, but also in, in the rest of Saudi Arabia. Your Royal Highness, you have been uh, most gracious with your time here. And I, you. I, I would like to uh, close with a final thought. Um, I was very struck and very happy with your image of um, how to get away from the hot spots because as an admiral I thought if only you could separate Saudi Arabia and sail away but you said you wanted to go to Scandinavia I would like to publicly invite you to bring Saudi Arabia off the coast of Massachusetts Nantucket and Saudi Arabia right there Martha's Vineyard it could be terrific for all of us it's a deal, sir. Thank you very much.